Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I suppose that there's probably a good number of people here who uh, don't know who I am, so I'll give you a brief introduction. Um, the name missionary was associated with my name, so I suppose that bears some explanation too. Uh, my name is Abram. I was born and raised in the Renfrew area, born into a Christian family, oldest of four. My mother is here this morning. Um, I was uh, blessed to uh, receive some good Christian teaching from a young age. And uh, uh, not long after uh, joining Elmwood Bible Chapel in Renfrew, um, became a Christian. I was uh, about age 13 and became quite involved in the youth group. The youth group at that time and also uh, involved in Camp Galley. I ended up uh, later on after leaving home going to uh, a Christian college and studied, uh, ended up, started out in Bible and uh, in biology and ended up in, uh, in Bible. Uh, <clears throat> I remember going to some missions conferences during my high school years and was quite inspired uh, until the next day. Uh, so there was no real interest in missions beyond that, uh, but somehow through college ended up in East Africa, in Tanzania, on a semester abroad program because I was quite interested in travel and learning about other cultures and things. And very soon after arriving there, although it wasn't my plan, I felt that God, um, that God had given me a love for that country and for the people there, and that there was something that uh, I could offer, something that I could do that would be meaningful and worthwhile, and fit very nicely in my interest in being a Bible teacher. So long story short, uh, continued with my education, but then quickly went back to Tanzania, joined Africa Inland Mission, and started work at a little Bible college called NASA Theological College. And now it's been almost 17 years. I met my wife in Nairobi, Kenya. She's American. So we have a cross-cultural kind of marriage. Um, uh, we, have, uh, we have four boys, one of our uh, we had we had twin boys, but one of them passed away uh, in the womb. Um, but as the Lord would have it, he opened the doors for us to receive a premature little twin Tanzanian boy who was brought to us. Um, and we've had him for almost five years now. We're trying to adopt him. Um, so he's you might say we have two sets of twins, but only one from each of the sets of twins. <laughs> uh, so that's been a great blessing. So I have four boys. The oldest is eight. His name is David. The uh, next one is James. He is six and a half. The third is named Isaiah. He's five. And then Kai Jage means he was born well. 
uh, is the last one, and he's going to be five pretty soon, the end of January. Thank you for your prayers for us. Um, uh, Read of You has been partnering with us for quite a number of years now, supporting us in prayer and and uh, financially, and we really appreciate the the uh, partnership. It's been, I think, six, probably six years since I've been back, um, partly due to COVID, partly because we've been in the uh, process of adoption, and there's some other reasons too. We were, were not able to leave the country with our youngest boy, and so somebody needs to stay with him. So most of the time that's been me. Uh, in brief, I mentioned that I, my wife and I, we work at this Bible college. So what do we do there? Um, I'm a, I, I teach. I teach Bible and missions courses. Um, I'm in administration, so I help lead the college. I'm not the principal, but I assist the principal. Um, we teach mainly Tanzanian people, people who are interested in going into the to full-time ministry. So they set aside a year, two, three, four years of their life committing themselves to study of the Word of God. It's a pretty formal, uh, more than one program, pretty formal structure. So we're teaching 30-hour uh, courses and on a normal term, we're teaching five or six courses at a time. So we're doing quite a lot. We have three terms a, a year, and we're quite excited about a number of our graduates have gone on, some of them even to become missionaries themselves. In Tanzania, we just recently had a census, and there are a little over 60 million people in the country. So it's a pretty, pretty large population, and at least half of them are children. In our own district, where we live, we live in a rural area. Our own district has 200 and some thousand people, but we're leading the country because more than half are age 14 and under. So in preparing people for full-time ministry, we're very aware um, of the importance of children's ministry and very aware of the importance of uh, teaching those people the word of God in depth and equipping them so that they can pass it on to the next generation. But in addition to that, there are approximately 120 tribes, 120 different tribes in the country of Tanzania, and at least six of them are totally unreached. Totally unreached. That's as in those who have done some survey work in those groups say that's like less than 0.5% have heard the gospel. So um, even within the country of Tanzania, there's still a lot of work to do. It's a very large Muslim population, Muslim presence. Some of those tribes that I've mentioned that are totally unreached are Muslim 99.9%. So in our work in training and preparing church leaders and uh, missionaries, we're very excited about getting them to go and do some of this work because as uh, an outsider, uh, sometimes it's not as effective, not as easy to build those relationships. But as a Tanzanian, 
same country, maybe a different tribe, but uh, some often they can they can do that kind of outreach and develop those friendships and uh, relationships with them more effectively. So we're excited about that. Some of our graduates, as I mentioned, have even partnered with our own mission mission agent uh, mission organizations, other missionaries. So Tanzanians together with with uh, Westerners on these teams, and so they're doing church planting and uh, missions work together. That's very exciting. So uh, it's a great privilege. It's a great privilege to be involved, very, very meaningful and um, a great blessing. And we really, really appreciate your partnership in that. I hope that you feel that you're a part of the team. You're doing good work. Well, I was told 15 minutes for that, but I'm, I'm really, I hope you'll forgive me. I really wanna get into the word of God. So I would like to stop there. <laughs> with the introduction and the brief report. Uh, I brought some prayer cards, some new ones. And if you are interested in, in getting on our prayer letter list, please, uh, you can contact us. On, there's some contact information on the prayer card. So this morning, I would like to look at uh, Luke chapter 15. And Luke chapter 15, one of the major um, themes in this chapter is about repentance. And you might may be thinking, oh, repentance, what a drag. It's almost Christmas. What's repentance got to do with Christmas? Um, well, <laughs> two things. First of all, I, I'm not an expert on the North American church at all. But I do feel or get the impression that the church in North America is struggling. And uh, a number of years ago, I remember that some people were comparing the North American church situation to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 4. And uh, so that's one of my reasons for getting to Luke 15. You'll see the connection, hopefully, uh, in a minute. And maybe I'll just read those verses in Revelation chapter 4. Not the part about that you're lukewarm and uh, that I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Not that part. But ahead a little bit to verse 19 and 20. Verse 19 and 20, Jesus' words to the church at in Laodicea. And John writes there, Jesus' words, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Well, I don't want to take long time to expound this verse, but I thought it was very encouraging. And in the context of a church that's possibly struggling, these could be helpful words. Jesus is not far. He says, here I am. 
here I am. I'm standing at the door, and I'm knocking. I've always loved that picture, that mental picture that Jesus is right there at the door, knocking. All we need to do is to repent and to receive him in. And he's going to come in and uh, not just inspect the place and say, well, it's kind of dusty in here, or you know, you've got a lot of work to do. Uh, instead, it says, I will come in and eat with him, fellowship. Okay, so that's, that's one thought that I've had, had in mind in, in talking about repentance and eventually we'll end up in Luke 15, but also in uh, the beginning of the book of Luke, chapter 3, this is a little more related to Christmas. Uh, in the book of, chapter, uh, of Luke in chapter 3, we have uh, John the Baptist, and he comes preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's preparation. It's preparation for the Lord Jesus coming into the world, Right? And so that's very Christmas related. And a, and a very important part of John's message is repentance. Repentance. Repentance is necessary, is an important part in the preparation for the receiving of Jesus. Okay? So that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, we're beginning of the Christmas season. Okay, we're preparing, we're remembering, and we're preparing to receive Jesus reception of Jesus into the world, and uh, part of that preparation involves repentance. All right, I think that's enough of, of a, a brief introduction to the topic, and now let's go to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, and we have three parables, three parables each uh, concerned with repentance. So let's start in verse 1, and we'll read to the end of verse 7, the first parable. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, that is, to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. So this is Jesus' response to this rather rude statement by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Clearly, they're disapproving of his actions, and Jesus responds with this parable. Verse 4, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls to his friends and neighbors, calls the, his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents 
than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, this is interesting. Well, for lots of reasons, it's interesting. But one of the reasons it's interesting is that uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law here, they were ones who had inherited the Abrahamic covenant. They inherited the Abrahamic covenant that said that through Abraham and his descendants, through them, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Okay, all peoples on earth will be blessed through those who had inherited the covenant. And yet, these Pharisees who in their heads probably knew quite well the scriptures, these teachers of the law, they're upset about Jesus welcoming sinners and then even eating with them. They're upset that Jesus would involve himself, associate himself with, with these sinners, okay? And we could imagine what those sinners may be according to the perspective of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Gentiles, I suppose, and maybe those uh, with bad behavior, okay? Even though they should be these Inheritors of the Abrahamic covenant should be the ones who should be reaching out, reaching out and welcoming in. And yet they have, they're very critical of Jesus doing this exact thing that they're supposed to be doing, welcoming sinners. Okay, so uh, Jesus responds with this parable. Um, I'm sure that you've heard it, heard it before and there are other examples in the scriptures of Jesus being the good shepherd. He calls himself the good shepherd and the activity of the good shepherd seeking the lost sheep, bringing them back. We know that all through the Bible, sheep often represent people. Uh, it's interesting in the Sukuma, <laughs> the Sukuma language, there's a certain term, Sukuma language, the Sukuma people is one of the largest tribes in Tanzania, and uh, most of the people that I work with are from this uh, Sukuma tribe. I learned that they have this certain uh, kind of a derogatory term for a person who is particularly stubborn, hard-headed, okay? And they're called the name of a ram. It's called, the word is ngondi, okay? And so if you call somebody Ngondi, uh, you are referring to a person who, like a ram who is going to hit but another ram, just puts his head down, can't see properly, and just runs straight at it. And sometimes they miss each other and they'll crash into a tree or something else. So. The, the idea is so, someone who is so stubborn and hard-headed um, <laughs> is even there in the uh, Sukuma language. So uh, when I think of sheep, you know, sometimes you think of uh, very innocent uh, 
absent-minded creatures, um, very gentle, but I grew up on a sheep farm and I'll tell you they're not just stupid um, and greedy and uh, mischievous and they're, they're definitely not always innocent, okay? Helpless uh, very often, but my point being that uh, sheep and human beings, they really do, it, it, it works. It works very well. So for those of you who are real fans of sheep, I'm sorry to disappoint. They're, they're not the perfect creature by any means. Okay, so the shepherd is going out to look for this lost sheep. And it's only one out of 100, so a one percenter. Usually that's a, a one percenter is a positive thing, but in this case, this is a lost one. And the shepherd goes out to look for the sheep. And eventually finds the sheep and returns joyfully, personally joyful. Not just like dragging the one sheep back and and talking badly to that sheep the whole way. Where, where did you think you were going? I told you this morning, I told you, don't go to that grass over there. I know it looks greener, but I told you it's not very good for you to go there, okay? We don't see the shepherd dressing down the sheep for going astray. Quite the opposite, in fact, the shepherd is joyfully caring and could you imagine if you were the sheep being carried on the shoulder, you might think, well, I, I'm going to go and get lost again. Look at this free ride. I'm up on the shoulders of the shepherd. The shepherd is joyful. I think that's significant. Personally joyful that he found the sheep and then goes another step further, you might say. He calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. We're going to have a celebration. I have found my lost sheep. Again, not shaming the sheep, not putting the sheep out as an example of, this is what a bad sheep does. And all of you 99, I know that you stayed, but look, if you ever, if you ever copy what this sheep does, no water for two days. You know I'm joking, right? Okay. I'm embellishing here for the sake of, uh, for the sake of exposition, right? Um, so instead, the, the response again of the shepherd is rejoicing and calling others to rejoice. And then comes the interpretation in verse 7. I tell you that in the same way that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So again, there it's very clear that repentance brings joy. I don't know if you have maybe necessarily thought of that. Maybe the way that you think of repentance is, uh, no, it's a drag. It's convicting. I have to look upon my sin and make a great effort to change and leave it. Well, that, that is part of it. Uh, but it's not the whole thing. Repentance is turning. It's turning away, but it's turning to something way better. Are we together? 
It's turning away, but it's turning to. Just like the bronze serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness, it was the source of salvation. And in that action of turning and believing and obeying, right, the healing came. There was life. So you could perhaps think of that in the context of repentance. Repentance leads to joy. And not only for you who have repented, but for others as well. The shepherd, he didn't do anything wrong, but he was joyful and he calls his friends. Here in the interpretation, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven. In heaven, there will be rejoicing over the repentance of even one who had gone astray and had uh, even one who had repented. All right. Okay, so that's the first one. Um, oh, maybe, maybe I should add here, I, I wrote down about repentance. Uh, repentance is a turning, a fundamental and holi holistic reorientation away from sin, death, and independence, to healing, to life, to relationship with God. The focus is not to be on our sin and self, but a fresh view or a reorientation of perspective towards a merciful and compassionate God, a God who wants us to completely turn to him. Uh, part of my research in, in my academic studies had, was on the topic of conversion. And conversion is coming from this idea of turning. It's very much related to repentance. That turning means all aspects of our life. All aspects of our life need to turn to Christ. Our finances, our health, our education, our relationships, our thoughts, our emotions, our habits, our bodies, all of it. Some of us are very good at certain parts of that turning, but there are other areas that need work. Again, the end of this process of repentance is joy and rejoicing. So I encourage you on that repentance uh, or through that repentance process. The second parable, verse 8 to 10. Jesus says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, in the first parable, we saw that Jesus, or God, we could say, very easily represent, is represented by the shepherd. Okay? But this one is a woman. Uh-oh. 
I mean, in the historical context, this would have been pretty awkward. God being represented by a woman. In those days, at that time, okay, amongst the Jews and amongst the Greeks as well, Greeks and Romans, this would have been uh, kind of strange. Uh, but I think Jesus uh, is being very uh, deliberate here uh, to show uh, God is willing to associate himself even with the lowest of uh, people in society. Those that might consider that, that that's going too far. God is willing to risk that association to be humble, and at the same time is also elevating the status of women at that time. I've also wondered, uh, you know, who, what kind of woman was this? And uh, maybe she's a widow. Uh, Luke seems to have an interest in uh, women in his in the Gospel of Luke and um, and in the Book of Acts. He's very interested in those who are on the margins of society. He's very interested in the Gentiles and uh, is quite happy to um, include, include people, okay? So perhaps that's maybe related to the reason why this is the parable. This is the way that it is in choosing a woman to be representative of the one going out to search for the, for the lost, the thing that was lost. Perhaps it was the wife of a tax collector. I say that because in verse uh, one, uh, two, verse one, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. So maybe, and, and she has some coins. The tax collectors probably had some coins around. So let's say, of course, it's complete speculation, right? Um, what if this was the wife of a tax, tax collector tax collector, and the tax collector is very good at uh, recording and keeping track of the coins that are around, and his wife happens to lose one. Um, there might be some additional pressure to go and find it, right? Well, we don't know. We don't know. I'm just speculating. So she loses one of these 10 coins. So uh, there, you can see this parable is a little different than the one before because even the value of what has been lost is increasing. So it was 1% before, now it's up to 10%. 10% of the total has been lost. And she diligently, carefully lights a lamp, sweeps the house, and looks all over and finds it. I think of my mother uh, some years ago who lost the diamond in her wedding ring. And she searched, she searched and she found it. And there was rejoicing when she found it. Very personally satisfying, but everybody else was happy about that too. Okay, so this, this is a woman who is searching for that lost coin. She finds it and she rejoices. Similar to the first parable. The coin is of value. To me, I think it speaks of value. It's found, 
and there's rejoicing and celebration. Now we, uh, we come to the climax. The third story and the most famous, among the most famous of the parables of Jesus, the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. And here, uh, right at the beginning, we see there's a man who had two sons. So from 1% to 10%, now we're up to 50%. Let's read this uh, whole parable, and then I'll make a few comments. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And uh, historically speaking, this was an incredibly insulting move on the part of this son to ask basically for the death of his father by asking the, the inheritance. Because normally, you don't get the inheritance until the father has died. So to ask early is basically to wish the death of his own father. So note that. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him uh, to his fields to feed pigs. And again, historically, this was terrible because Jews considered pigs to be unclean animals. So for a Jew to be working amongst pigs was uh, very unclean and would have been totally socially unacceptable. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So not only had he totally wasted all that he had been given, but uh, he had no friends. He had no one to help him. Verse 17, when, we, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother 
became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who had squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the, my, the father said, you, were all, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I've been uh, thinking about this parable quite a lot in the last couple of months. Um, and I've actually, well, but before I want to say that, let me finish this thought. I've been thinking about it quite a lot in the past few months. And um, I've realized over the years the importance of uh, understanding God as Father. And because in this particular parable, we have a picture of God as a father who has these two sons, uh, I think is significant to think about how uh, our relationships to our human fathers affects our understanding of God as father. And the reason is, uh, I remember a long time ago, there was a, a Bible translation project going on, and the suggestion was that the term father should not be used for God because there are too many people with broken relationships with their fathers. It is too traumatizing to associate the, the idea of father or the term father with God. It's just too much. It's too painful for those who have abusive fathers, alcoholic fathers, uh, fathers who, who left the family, abandoned. It, it was just too much. And uh, that really struck me because uh, my first impulse was, you're not to mess with the word of God. Uh, that's not for us to decide. Um, but at the same time, being sympathetic to the fact that it is true that a lot of people don't have very good fathers. And, and then to think, why did God choose to reveal himself in that way? And why did he allow for himself to be possibly misunderstood by associating himself or even allowing himself to be called father? And in fact, we might be surprised that Jesus teaches us that's how to pray. We start with our father. Not all of us have been blessed with a good relationship with our human fathers. So I wanted to mention that uh, because uh, clearly father here is very important in this, in this parable. And um, I think we have to come to terms with our, the relationships we have with our human fathers and how that relates and affects 
our understanding of God as our Father. This could be very difficult. The, the, the picture that came to mind um, in preparing for this uh, message was of Jacob wrestling with God. Wrestling. Wrestling with God to sort out the weaknesses, the mistakes, the wounds that we may have, ex have experienced by our human fathers. At the same time, acknowledging and receiving the healing for those things that our fathers did well, to celebrate and be thankful for those things. And then how does, that, how, do, how does all of that relate to our understanding of God and our relationship with God as our Father? The wrestling through that could be perhaps similar to what Jacob did in wrestling with God. He, through that process, he was broken, but he was blessed. But it was worth it. The wrestling was worth it. So I would challenge you to also wrestle with that understanding of your human father and, and your heavenly father. Okay? Now I'm sharing this uh, on I'm 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 sharing this on a very vulnerable heart level too because even right now I'm still grieving the death of my own father. Uh, I've been away. The last time I was home was for my father's funeral, almost four years ago. But even before that, and uh, and even that aside, it has been something that I've had to think about from time to time about the relationship between our human fathers and our heavenly father. And this parable to me is, uh, is a very important in understanding that relationship properly. It's a beautiful, powerful picture. Now, on some levels, we could say uh, very quickly that this parable speaks to the Jews at the time and speaks to the Gentiles of the time. It speaks to those who were in the category of tax collectors and sinners, and they could easily fit into the category of those who were the lost, lost ones, the prodigals. And then the ones who are the, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or the Jews more broadly, could easily fit with the ones who knew who, who, who knew the right stuff, but misunderstood the father like the older son. And I remember realizing that, uh, you know, that older son really, really has a problem here. He has really misunderstood the father to not be celebrating, to not be welcoming his younger brother back, not be recognizing the significance of his return. He was dead. He was lost. And now he's back. And the older father, all his uh, older son, all he, he, he gets angry and, and doesn't even want to participate and is critical of his father being so soft, maybe, <laughs> so compassionate. Perhaps like Jonah the prophet, who said, I knew you were a compassionate God, and that's not what I wanted. 
I wanted death and destruction for those terrible Ninevites. So uh, that kind of attitude of the Jews towards those sinners and those outsiders, boy, that's convicting. And I think that that's part of what Jesus was giving this parable for, was to warn them. They, they, they need to repent. They need to repent. Um, very quickly, I've had trouble, personally, had trouble understanding this parable and where I fit in it. Because I think that Jesus invites us to enter into the parables. He invites you and I to figure out who we are in the parable. Okay? He gave those parables, I think, for that reason. And so, uh, in thinking about uh, my past and thinking about uh, as a firstborn and wanting to please my parents, uh, having a natural understanding of salvation, but uh, I should say a natural understanding of how to get saved, that is through works, doing the right things. Um, so when I first encountered the gospel uh, of grace and forgiveness through Jesus alone and not through salvation, I was confused. I had a hard time. It took me time to eventually believe that Jesus uh, did die for me and that he did forgive me. That took time. One of the things I had trouble with was, although I clearly failed to be righteous and earn salvation, I didn't do those wild and wasteful things that the prodigal son did. So it didn't click with me. The prodigal, I, 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 got, I could think of human examples of people who had lived like the prodigal son, but I was not one of them. I'm being perfectly honest. I did not seem to fit into the prodigal son uh, example here. So where does that leave me? It leaves me as the older brother. I found that tremendously convicting because, I, uh, yeah, I was judgmental. I did judge other people. And um, sad to say, um, I think the temptation of wanting to go back to please God, please my father by doing good works was part of it. Perhaps also not wanting to identify with the prodigal son was uh, because I, even though I knew on an intellectual level that it was better to be the prodigal son in the end because of how well he's received. Perhaps uh, well, on an emotional level, I was not ready for that. I was not ready. I was perhaps too ashamed to fully believe God's overwhelming love and welcoming and celebration. I'm not saying that this needs to be your experience. I'm only sharing my experience just in the, in the off chance that it speaks to you. So, 
I would encourage you to also think and consider from these parables and this particular parable, the parable of the lost son, who are you in the parable? Which son are you? And why are you that son? Have you really thought about the father and the way he responds to his sons? Even to the older son, I must say, he is remarkably merciful and gracious. Remarkably. He could have said, that's it. You have been with me all of this time, and you still don't know me. Get out. But he doesn't do that. He goes out and talks to him in a really kind way. To the prodigal son, who comes home terribly ashamed, at the end of his rope, totally alone. He had tried. He had lived independently. He made all kinds of mistakes. And what does he see? The body language speaks volumes in this par parable. It was not, well, he wasn't in the house. He wasn't on his computer, he wasn't watching TV, he wasn't on his phone, right? He wasn't out, he wasn't this. He came running, as it says in verse uh, 20. While he was still a long way off, that is the, son, the prodigal son coming, still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And although the, so it must have been so awkward, uncomfortable that the son, you know, now coming to confess. And uh, I think it's quite amazing in verse 22, but the father said to his servants, not speaking to the sons, to the son now, he says to the servants, what? Quick, bring the best robe and bring it on and put it on him. You, would, you, 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 could, you wouldn't be surprised if the father said, Now, son, I know that you're coming to confess, but I want to hear exactly what you're confessing about. Or, you've done the right thing to come home, uh, but, but there's some things that we need to discuss. You took the inheritance. You really disrespected me. And so... There's some conditions here. If I'm going to take you back, yeah, you're going to be the servant or, I mean, there, there's any number of possible responses there. But instead of even talking to him, he's so excited. He's so joyful that he's, in, he's talking to the servants. Quick, bring this, bring this, bring this. All celebrating his son. And then says in verse 24, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found, found. So they began to celebrate. So there was no time for the rubbing it in of the prodigal son, all that he did. No, it was time to celebrate. And I think that's a wonderful picture of God our Father welcoming. If we go back again to Revelation, there, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And all we have to do Repent, open the door, let him in. And he'll come in, and like I said before, he's not there to inspect or to criticize. He's there to fellowship. He's there to eat with you 
is there to eat with me? Well, we've gone over a little bit uh, over time a little bit, but I hope that uh, some of these thoughts from this passage have been a blessing to you, and I would encourage you to revisit. Although you've probably known the parable of the prodigal son or heard it many, many times, there's still so much there. Uh, I'm finding still much, much there to meditate on and to be blessed with and to receive, not only on an intellectual level but even on an emotional, uh, relational level. There's the Father. He's out there waiting for you to come home. May the Lord bless his word to us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity and the great privilege it is to call you Father. We thank you that you gave your own son so that we could be called sons and daughters. We thank you that you have brought us back into relationship. Thank you for the great cost to you that that was. Thank you for the way that you forgive us and receive us with joy and rejoicing. We pray that as we repent, as we repent, as we turn more fully to you, that you will be with us. We trust that you will be. We trust that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth and guide us in this, pro in this process of repenting and turning to you. We thank you that it was meant to be a joyful process, uh, at least in the end to be joyful and uh, we thank you yeah we thank you for all of this we thank you for who you are thank you for your great love we pray that you'll be with us as we go from this place be be a blessing to us and we pray that you will help us to be a blessing to others we pray in jesus name amen